This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, doing the podcast for our 2022 special issue on radiation oncology in gynecologic malignancies. I have the uh, guest editors for the, uh, for the special issue, uh, Dr. David Gaffney, Dr. Anuja Jingren, and Dr. Karen Krautsberg. Uh, who will be joining us in, in a little bit at the uh, completion of the podcast. So I want to welcome all of you and thank you once again. I know that this is a massive effort to put together a special issue. You all did a, a fantastic job. Uh, I think, you know, certainly the topic of radiation oncology in gynecologic malignancies lends itself so well to the special issue because of all of the new things that are um, coming up in the field. So first I wanna welcome uh, um, all of you to the, uh, to the podcast. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you very much, Pedro. I, I would also just like to point out that this was a great joy uh, for me to work on. I have known Dr. Jingren and Dr. Kreutzberg for several decades and they're just valued colleagues great contributors to our field and, and icons. And it was truly a, a joy to put together. I also want to acknowledge and thank the many people that contributed high quality articles. Um, it's, it's truly, uh, it, it was really a fun project. I don't love all things equally, but this was great to be involved in. I would also like to point out that radiotherapy has changed. Chemotherapy and medical oncology is clearly changed in gynecologic malignancies as well as surgery, but radiotherapy is better. And after I make a couple comments, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Jingren to make a couple comments about what she sees as different in the field. But imaging is markedly better. And computer power has enabled us to, to generate very complex plans. And, and with image guidance, we're able to deliver those treatments pretty expeditiously. Now, it, it does require resources to do that, but the field has changed and it's changed for the better. And so I, I just like to ask Anuja what, what she sees as, as changes in, in uh, radiation oncology in general. No, and I agree. I just gave a, um, a talk to the fellows last night, the Gen Oncology fellows, and that's what we talked about was that the image-guided therapy, image therapy has changed everything. But I also think the field um, and cervix cancer has changed, right? And so we have new drugs for the first time in a long time. We have drugs that are very effective and using, uh, you know, getting radiation to be combined with those drugs is really gonna change how we treat cervix cancer and most gynecological malignancies as we move forward. Yeah, so really very, very excited to, to hear about uh, those changes and in, uh, in those advances. So um, it, we're, we're going to touch on, on some general topics, uh, but certainly, obviously, um, as the guest editors, feel free to, to expand on, on some of these points that we'll discuss. And uh, many of these questions were uh, submitted by the uh, fellows of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Um, so we want to acknowledge them as well. Um, so, Anuja, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with you, um, a topic that almost seems to come up in, in every discussion in gynecologic oncology today, uh, immunotherapy. Um, so I wanted to talk specifically about the advances in immunotherapy for cervical cancer, uh, recent developments, and, and some of the future directions. 
Um, this first question comes from uh, Demetrius Natsiudis um, at the University of Pennsylvania here in the United States. And he asks, what are the potential biomarkers that could identify patients who would benefit the most from immunotherapy? Do you think immunotherapy may have a role for all cervical cancer patients? So I'm going to answer some of this and I'm going to let David answer more because he's actually probably one of the experts on this. But I think the biomarker that's probably the most known is PDL1. And high expressors of PDL1 do respond to immunotherapy. So I mean, I think that's one of the biggest ones. But the other two that are there is, is CD, um, CD8 and um, tumor lymph tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or TL. Um, lymphocytes. And so those are two of the other big ones, but PDL1 is probably the biggest one that we know of. Um, David, do you want to add anything more to that? Yeah. Um, it's a brave new world. So in the past <laughs> couple months, there's been a couple articles in the New England Journal of Medicine in cervix cancer about immunotherapy, one in uh, pembrolizumab and the other in sepilimumab. Sorry, it's that's a hard word for me to say. <laughs> But uh, they both showed that patients who are, who are poor expressors of PDL1 have, have essentially limited or no benefit. Now, in the Pembro article by Dr. Colombo et al., it showed overall that there was a marked um, improvement in overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.67. However, in those with a, a combined prognostic score of less than one, there, there was no particular improvement. The hazard ratio was 0.94 in that article. For patients with a score of one to 10, the hazard ratio was 0.68. And for patients with a score of greater than 10, the hazard ratio for improvement and survival was 0.58. So you can clearly see a trend. So what is this combined prognostic score? It's an, an immunohistochemical test looking at the staining of malignant cells and immune cells, macrophages and lymphocytes, compared to the number of positive tumor cells in, uh, evaluated under the microscope. So that's what the combined prognostic score is. So we do have a biomarker. Do we know how to use it optimally? I don't think so yet. There'll be more studies and, and many of what we, much of what we have now is subset analysis. But we're going to learn a lot in the years to come uh, as, as we get a deluge of new information about immunotherapy drugs. Yeah, and, uh, and David and, and Anuja, uh, a, a follow-up question from Demetrius as well. Um, you know, he talks about immunotherapy being incorporated in, in, in the first-line setting. But um, what about the role following that, you know, re-challenging, um, you know, particularly in patients with, with uh, a, a prolonged disease-free interval. Can I, before we answer that question, I do want people to know that there are two really big trials that are gonna be coming up soon that will tell us the results of immunotherapy plus radiation. And I think those are really important to know. CALA, which has been completed, is a huge, almost 600 to 700 patient trial that looked at immunotherapy plus radiation therapy and locally advanced cervix cancer. And those results should come out soon. And that I think will be a very important trial to tell us what the future of immunotherapy plus radiation is in locally advanced treatments. Now, immunotherapy followed by more immunotherapy. David, do you want to answer that one? 
uh, I will try. I don't know exactly how to do that yet. I don't know who the patients are that will benefit, but I think there are patients out there. So for example, if, you, if, if a patient was on a single agent immunotherapy drug and they have a, have a wonderful response and they go off the medicine uh, and they relapse, they could likely be rechallenged with dual immunotherapy agents or immunotherapy and chemo. I don't know of specific data that addresses this. I think we're going to have trials in the future, but I'm, I'm hopeful that, that, uh, that we will have paradigms like that in the future. I'm going to have a follow-up question for that though. I have a follow-up question. So let's not talk about immuno followed by immuno and metastatic, but let's say the Outback trial has been negative, right? So we know that probably chemotherapy um, for most patients is not beneficial after chemo RT. So what is, and I'm going to ask David and Petra, what are your thoughts about using immunotherapy instead, especially if you had a high expressor PDL one and let's say they're no positive. What are, what are thoughts about adjuvant immunotherapy instead of chemotherapy? David. I'm hopeful. I, I, you know, we saw such a large signal in Dr. Colombo's uh, pembrolizumab trial in advanced uh, cervix cancer published in the New England Journal recently, and also Dr. Tawari's uh, publication. That signal was so large that I think there may be hope to, to look at adding that in select populations. And you know those trials were essentially unselected patients. So I think in the future, we'll see trials addressing selected populations, i.e. patients who are high expressors of, of the con combined prognostic score, high expressors of PD-L1, et cetera. Yeah, and I also, I think it's, it's probably too early to um, really uh, suggest that there is a role. Um, and as you mentioned, obviously we were awaiting the results of these trials to determine what is going to be the, the benefit and which patients are potentially gonna be benefiting from immunotherapy. But I wanted to ask you both, uh, do you have any um, you know, information or, or, or um, data you can share with us with regards to side effects of combining immunotherapy with radiation therapy? It's mostly diarrhea. And that's really been the biggest side effect has been diarrhea. So um, it, it, that's probably, I think, what we see the most of. And that's where, again, image-guided treatment helps. IMRT or VMAT will help because it reduces the dose of the bowel. But it is, right now it's diarrhea, but I've heard there's significant side effects of Pembro and other immunotherapies on their own that we're now just seeing since we're using it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would echo those great comments. I think that's uh, completely accurate. But to Anuja's important point, um, it's better, you know, radiotherapy with chemo is better tolerated because of advanced technology. And I think it gives us room to add additional agents. So that part's exciting. So, you know, we actually have a trial at MD Anderson that we're using actually the vaccine. It's an anti-HPV vaccine with our locally advanced cervix patients. And they've actually, we have about five patients through it and they've tolerated it very well. Yeah. And, and one last question on this topic before I, I move on to uh, some of the other topics that we want to cover. Um, from your perspective, the use of immunotherapy 
in conjunction with radiation therapy outside of a clinical trial? Well, I think it's early days yet, and I think we need to be cautious. We need to look at the look at specifically at the patients that were treated, those indications. There, it, it, this is a, a fantastic time in all of oncology, in gynecologic oncology, but all of oncology with these agents. But we are just getting data now to to find out which patients will will particularly benefit in a disease like cervix cancer. So. I think we're going to learn more. I'd be a little cautious as to as to moving those in in uh, in in creative ways in the absence of data. I 100% agree. Great. So definitely look forward to uh, seeing many of these articles in the uh, in the special issue. So now um, shifting gears a little bit. Um, obviously, we cover a global community of um, gynecologic oncologists radiation oncologists, patients. Um, and the next few questions are regarding um, radiation oncology in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, the status, the problems, considerations for the future. And these next two questions come from our fellow, Natalie Medley, she's in Jamaica. And first she asks, uh, what percentage of patients do you consider outside of the major institutions uh, in the US and Europe, of course, that complete external beam radiotherapy and brachytherapy within the appropriate time frame. Well, that's, that's a wonderful question, Natalie. I think, I think the honest answer is, I don't know. I can, I can tell you that even in resource rich places such as the United States, we, do, we have done trials where recently there's a, a, roughly a third of patients do not meet that bar. So these quality parameters are challenging to meet. Um, I do think that there are, are places in Sub-Saharan Africa that, that, uh, that do v extremely well. There are other places that there's almost no care. For example, about a dozen years ago, I was in a, a large country in the Horn of Africa they had one accelerator for 80 million people. They treated about 100 patients a day on one machine. It was, it was Herculean. They did such a beautiful job caring for these patients. Half of the patients on treatment were, were cervix cancer patients. Half of those patients had visible inguinal lymph nodes. So in other words, they were far advanced. So there's a lot of parameters we need to worry about other than do patients complete chemoradiotherapy within, in eight weeks, i.e., how quickly do they get on to, on to treatment? Do they get chemotherapy? Do they get an effective boost, et cetera? So there's a lot of issues that are, are um, that play here. Dr. Zingren's an expert in international care too. So Anuja, you wanna make yeah, comments? I, I totally agree with everything you said, David. And it's not just the linear accelerators or the um, cobalt machine, right? It's not just external beam. A lot of centers have just um, just external beam and no brachytherapy. And for cervix cancer patients, we all know that it's really important to have both treatments and not just one. And there's a, definitely a decrease in local control and survival if you just have external beam alone. Um, we do know a lot of the countries are investing a lot in the linear accelerators, but not doing it in brachytherapy. And I think that has to be emphasized to these countries' governments that you need to get both for the population that they have. 
And Anuja, then that brings me to the next question by Natalie. Um, she says, what are your views on external beam and brachytherapy boost um, in place of brachytherapy where brachytherapy is just not available for cervical cancer treatment? So there's two ways to look at it, right? There's actually been several studies that we uh, have published that have shown a decrease in both local control and survival in cervix cancer as, as well as in vaginal cancer when brachytherapy is admitted. Um, two, I mean, very large studies that have shown this. However, that's the ideal world, right? And we don't always live in an ideal world. So if you can't do brachytherapy, if you don't have brachytherapy, then, they, then you have to have an option. Um, even though it's inferior, then you can use external beam boots, right? I think it's important to get the dose in, but in an ideal world, external beam and brachytherapy is the treatment of choice. But in a non-ideal world where you don't have that, you definitely can use external beam as a boost. I use it for my 4A patients where I cannot do brachytherapy and we've had great results, but that requires a lot of using a lot of techniques and image guided treatments to do that. David, do you want to add anything yeah, more to I, that? I fully agree with, with Dr. Gingren. If, if the, uh, that's all one is able to do, that's clearly better than, than no boost. There's uh, great data and data from several decades ago by Anuja's colleague, Dr. Eiffel from MD Anderson that, that showed exactly what she's describing. The survival rates go down and, and morbidity goes up as you transition to external beam, uh, but it's clearly better than, than not. I also wanna mention, so why does brachytherapy work? It's not, it's not that readily apparent. The reason, in my estimation that it works so well that we are able to cure women with large tumors is the heterogeneity of the dose. So the, the central part of the cervix is receiving a very, a very high dose. So we used to prescribe 85 gray to, to point A or an EQD2 to the high risk CTV of 85 gray, but that's what the periphery of the tumor is getting. The central part of the tumor is getting essentially double that. And so in my estimation, that's, that's the, the advantage of brachytherapy in a disease like cervix cancer. And as a follow-up question, um, you know, obviously uh, <clears throat> resources are limited in many uh, regions of the world, um, but do the radiation oncologists from those regions have access to programs or consultation seminars that can be done through telemedicine that will be able to provide them some sort of guidance as to how to overcome some of these limitations in providing care for those patients. Are you aware of any of those programs? So I think there's a lot of societies that are working on this. I mean, so many societies are working on it and so many uh, nonprofit organizations are working on it. So Radiating Hope is one of the bigger uh, nonprofits that are really helping actually bring brachytherapy centers, um, machines into places where there's no brachytherapy machine, and actually bringing professionals in to help train the radiation oncologists on how to do that. But there are also societies, the IGCS has, has a, um, a ECHO program now for radiation oncologists, and they're thinking about doing a certification for brachytherapists. ABS is thinking the same thing. The IAEA, huge, right? And that, that is what they do, is train. So there are ways to do this, and there are ways. Um, 
we are, and telemedicine's the biggest thing now, you know, with us going to Zoom and Echo, right? We actually have lots more platforms to help teach this. Yeah, that, I guess that's been a hidden benefit of the pandemic. We've learned a little bit better how to do this. And I know Dr. Zingren has been working for decades in this sphere. So uh, it's, it's great work. And Pedro, I want to just thank you, for, you and the journal for the great outreach efforts that you do. We clearly can do more. We need to ask our societies to step up uh, and work together with us. But, uh, but I, think, I think we're getting better slowly at this. Well, and I want to thank you both for really um, uh, focusing in highlighting and, and featuring some of the, the work that is being done in places like Africa in this uh, special issue. So thank you for doing that. Now, uh, moving forward to another hot topic in radiation oncology, um, stereotactic body radiation therapy. Um, first, I was wondering if you can just share with our non-radiation oncology community uh, briefly in, in somewhat lay terms, what is that? What is SBRT? Well, I can, I'll start. So it's, it's a little bit artificial uh, and it's a, a construct that doesn't make a lot of sense, but essentially it's, it's a five fraction regimen where you give moderate high doses with increased fixation and advanced imaging. And that, that dose can be higher, but typically it can't be more than five fractions and it could be anywhere from one to five fractions. This grew out of um, more than three decades worth of work in stereotactic radiosurgery. So we learned first how to do it in the head where it was easier to provide immobilization and we've gotten good with immobilization and movement control in other parts of the body. Uh, Dr. Zingren, you want to expound? It's just basically what we're doing is we're treating a small lesion. And that's all we're treating and we're sparing the normal tissue. So the easiest thing is lung, right? You have a small peripheral nodule. We can treat that without treating any of the rest of the lung. So it's robotic surgery, right? But it's robotic radiation therapy. It's what, how I heard it when we first initially brought it out. <laughs> but it's great because we can actually isolately treat a small lesion without treating any normal tissue around it. And we can pretty much do it throughout any part of the body. So right now, the most common places to use it is the lung and the liver. And then, of course, the brain, right? We use it on the brain all the time. We don't do whole brain radiation therapy anymore. We do stereotactic radiation now, up to 10 yeah. lesions in the brain. Great. So that's a, a great setup for the next uh, series of questions that come to us from Felix Boria in, uh, in Spain. And his first question is, if you had to choose, what would be your main indication for stereotactic radiation therapy in gynecologic malignancies? Well, I, th I think um, Felix is getting at the, the question of patient selection. Who are, the, who are the best patients to utilize this in? And, and um, you know, I, I guess in our own practice, we've done it um, occasionally in ovarian cancer and cervix cancer and endometrial cancer. But the patients who are, who are, I think, the best candidates are patients with oligometastatic disease, i.e. one or a few lesions, ideally with a long disease-free interval. And, um, and those patients can have a good result. The other, the other group of patients where there's a moderate amount of, of data is, is para-aortic recurrences, sometimes caught early, 
There's large studies out of Korea where they would do imaging in these patients and they'd catch small volume periaortic disease and have extremely good results by doing stereotactic body radiosurgery or radiotherapy in, in the periaortic region. So long disease-free interval, small masses. One of the great things about doing this is in a disease like ovarian cancer, it can extend the time to the next therapy. There's, there's nice data, again, from MD Anderson. I, I don't like to cite Dr. Zingren's institution all the time, but they, there is a lot of data from that place and as well as Dr. Ramirez, but, but they have clear data and there's other data that shows the same thing that you can extend the time to the next therapy. That can be very important for patients in, you know, who, are, who have ovarian cancer who need a so-called chemo holiday. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's the one to three. Um, I do think the NRG was trying to get a trial that was up to five. Um, we have a trial at Anderson right now that is um, systemic therapy versus systemic therapy plus stereotactic radiation therapy for one to three lesions. Um, good success rate. We have actually cervix, ovarian, or endometrial patients can um, enroll in that. And I know the NRG was trying to do one for cervix, and I think they're still working on trying to get one for cervix. Same way, systemic versus systemic plus radiation. But ideally, it's the one to three. Um, I, I yeah. also should highlight one of the reasons why some people think it might work. And I don't think we know the answer to this, but when you give very high doses, you may, you, you kill the tumor, you may ex, ex, um, uh, unmask new epitopes, so new immunologic targets. And that may, uh, permit, that may allow the patient's own immune system to fight the tumor better. You may then get an abscopal response. And I don't, know, I don't think we have data on this yet, but you may get a heightened immunotherapy response if, if someone undergoes immuno, immunotherapy. Uh, that, that, that is untested, but, but one of the beliefs is that high dose will expose new epitopes and, and create a greater immune response. Yeah, and, and as um, you mentioned, uh, Anuja, the studies on one to three lesions or five lesions. And uh, I, I think I've, I heard you, David, say that, you know, certainly like a, a periodic recurrence would also be ideal for this. What about size? Uh, what is the upper limit of size of a lesion in order for this to be ideal? So can I say one thing before? I, so I'm going to disagree with my colleague, Dr. Gaffney, <laughs> on the periodics. I know there's data on it, but I'm going to say at least outside of ovarian cancer, I think for cervix and endometrium, if you have isolated periodic recurrence um, above your field or it, that, I think you need to treat the chain because I think the whole chain is involved, but maybe ovarian cancer, you could do stereotactic. Um, but what's the size? You know, I don't know. I mean, David, we don't treat more than two to three. I mean, I because the bigger the size, the more normal tissue you're going to get. Um, so I, we do. I mean, I'll have to say more than two to three. We're going to say no. David, is there a size limit that you guys use? Not hard and fast. Um, I think you could select a few a lesion or two that's five or six centimeters in size. I'm not saying that's the optimal one, but what is important is is its uh, location. If it's next to a critical structure and contiguous, that is not a good idea. So, so it's basically the space around it, um, and that that may enable you to do yeah. SBRT or yeah. Not. I think there's no higher hard and fast. Ours is through about three, 
And then if they're bigger, we'll do hypo and not stereo. So I think that's just a preference. Okay. And uh, one additional question from Felix. Um, of course, obviously in ovarian cancer, now we're using PARP inhibitors, uh, often in the upfront adjuvant setting, uh, sometimes in the recurrent setting. So his question is, uh, what do you think uh, about the role of stereotactic radiation therapy in the treatment of oligometastatic recurrence after PARP inhibitors? I think you definitely can use it. I have to say, we actually have a trial. Again, I'm sorry that we keep mentioning MD Anderson. We actually have a trial right now for ovarian cancer patients who are recurrent, and it's part plus it's part plus radiation. So it's not stereo since we're giving it with the PARP. So we're using standard fractionation. It's a phase one study because we need to look at the side effects. The patients have actually tolerated it well. I've had two or three on it, and they've done great. So we are using PARP plus radiation in ovarian cancer patients, but I definitely think that you can use it with stereotactic in a heartbeat. Our extend trial, we do have that as part of our options. I'd like to uh, welcome Dr. Kreutzberg. It's great for you to join us, Karen. So nice to have you. I, I will just add that the way I envision ovar uh, ovarian cancer, it's not radio resistant, it's just the pattern of spread makes it makes it such that radiotherapy isn't isn't always indicated but for select lesions with long disease free interval particularly in the oligometastatic setting radiotherapy can be a very good choice and it can like we said before extend the time to the next therapy that can be very important for the patient especially particularly in cell. yeah that's fantastic and and, and welcome Karen we've had a, a really uh, lively discussion uh, so far, so we definitely looking forward to uh, your your uh, input as well. Um, one additional question before we leave the topic of uh, stereotactic radiation therapy uh, for our listeners from South America, Africa, Asia, um, is this something that is routinely or potentially available in those regions? If you have correct image-guided treatments, then you can do it, but you have to have the image guidance. So when we do stereotactic, we do daily CTs, or in our case, we'll do MRI because we have an MRI Linux, right? But you have to have the images. If you can't, you could put fiducials and you could do daily x-rays. So there are other ways. You don't have to have the CT, but you've got to have daily image. You've got to make sure that you're treating what you're treating um, every day. I would also like to point out, it's pretty customary in the United States, and I'll ask Carrie and how it is in Europe, but we typically have a physicist for every MD in the clinic. So it takes a lot of physics support to do mm -hmm. SBRT in particular. Karen, what's the status in Europe for SBRT? Well, it's, I think it's similar, although we don't have uh, a physicist for every RT. We do, we do have uh, fewer physicists, but they are heavily involved, obviously, in all of the... But there are also quite some specialized uh, technicians who do a lot of the SRT uh, stuff in the terms of making sure you're treating the right target, etc. So, yes, uh, I think it's increasing. It's, it's increasingly... Uh, also used in um, indications where previously uh, more systemic therapy was used. And now we can target oligomets. And uh, I think it's for the benefit of the patients, both in terms of toxicity and in 
a delay of progression and of further systemic treatment. Great. So definitely looking forward to uh, looking at the articles on stereotactic uh, radiotherapy in the special issue. Um, and now the topic of um, image-guided brachytherapy, and particularly in cervical cancer. Um, these next uh, few questions are from our fellow Florian Joshum from uh, France. And her first question is regarding, I think, a practice that is fairly common in France. Um, she talks about brachytherapy after concomitant chemoradiotherapy is the standard of care for locally advanced cervical cancer. But there are places could potentially explore the possibility of preoperative or neoadjuvant brachytherapy in early cervical cancer. Um, is there a role for this? What do you guys think? Well, it's quite a challenging question because indeed this is uh, historically a common practice in France, mm -hmm. but I think outside of France, few centers would use it. Of course, the rationale would be that if you give brachytherapy for an early stage cancer first, that you reduce the tumor and the idea was to reduce also the likelihood of spread and of recurrence but there is not that strong data that it is uh, so much more um, improvement in terms of uh, recurrence-free survival that um, it is worth uh, the added toxicity and uh, the outcomes of, of surgery and even also fertility sparing surgery, obviously in early stage cervical cancer are quite good. So I think that's the short answer to this question. Um, there's no guidelines I know of outside of the front who would still use that. I don't know if you would add something, David, for the international well, scope. No, I, I loved your answer. I, I, I want to ask my colleagues how they feel about a grossly involved stage two endo, endometrial uh, uterine cancer. So in uterine cancer, if the surgeon feels they can't get it out, do you think there's a role for a preoperative or, or prehysterectomy brachytherapy. So, that's also an historic approach. Yeah, so that's been our standard here at Anderson is for the two, for the stage 2B cervix cancers, we actually do external beam plus brachytherapy followed by hysterectomy. Um, yeah, but, but we do, you do, do the combination. Yeah. I would say the same. And um, we have discussions in our multidisciplinary team meeting if you would need new adjuvant chemo or new adjuvant radiotherapy. And if you do a new adjuvantly, what's then the advantage above uh, doing a uh, definite uh, procedure? But for, for uterine cancer, we would prefer to do surgery at all times. But, um, but yes, we would do it in the same way when the uh, gynecologist would think it too risky to, uh, to do an upfront surgery. And Anuja, I'd like to hear your thoughts as well, going back to cervical cancer. Is there any role or any evidence to support preoperative or neoadjuvant brachytherapy in cervical cancer? I, we, I've actually never used this since I've been doing, <laughs> so it's been a long time, so I'm not gonna say how long I've done, but I haven't, but no, I don't think there is. Great. So um, <clears throat> her next question is, brachytherapy is only performed in expert centers with an adaptive technical platform, is there a problem of accessibility to brachytherapy? Is image-guided brachytherapy more difficult to access 
than 2D or 3D brachytherapy? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that we tend um, to do this in expert centers because you need a multidisciplinary team. You need, um, well, expensive equipment if you do the full MRI-guided um, brachytherapy. And it has been shown and been proved to really increase both survival and local control to an amazing in embrace one even an amazing local control rate of 92% for advanced stages included. So yeah, it has also in our center, but there's more published data on that, really uh, seen we've seen an improvement in survival and recurrence-free survival for all of these patients when we used um, image-guided brachytherapy. I think it's it's far better than 2D brachytherapy, the old uh, point A approach, where you treat every tumor as if it is the same. And um, if you compare it to other forms of 3D brachy, like using CTs or using echoes in specialized centers, in all of these cases, you need people who have enough experience with this to know what they're doing. So that would be my case for performing it in an expert center. But yes, it can be done if you have no access to MRI with, with CT, which is great for the organs at risk anyway, uh, and specialized echo if you're really people who can do this in an expert way, then it's also a new development. So yes, I think it's much better in terms of results and survival. And, and while MRI would, would be ideal, you can also use other techniques. Yeah, I, I want to support that fully. It's, it's hard to assemble the team and to have all the correct resources. So Karen made the point that specialized centers uh, make this work best. I fully agree with that. Um, CT can be quite useful. It's just not as good. You can't see the tumor per se. You can see the cervix, but you can't see the tumor. So MR image guidance is the gold standard but uh, ultrasound or CT can be utilized um, in, in select places. Great, and Anuja, do you have any uh, additional comments? I think Dr. Jingren disappeared to clinic. <laughs> okay, well, I, now, now that I have uh, both of you, and of course, obviously also wanna be respectful of your times, um, I'd like to have you answer individually. Um, where do you see the, the, the field of radiation oncology, the biggest progress as it pertains to cervical cancer, uterine cancer, and ovarian cancer? Well, for me, for cervical cancer, of course, the advantage that now we have an additional immunotherapy, I think that will be increasingly utilized in the coming uh, years. I mean, I think we've now really sophisticated brachytherapy. And I think that we will not see any systemic treatment uh, or any external beam treatment, be it stereotactic or what technique to surpass the results of this expert uh, MRI-guided brachytherapy. But in, in terms of preventing systemic recurrences, I think that combination with, uh, with immunotherapy would want be one of the things we are going to see in the coming uh, years. And of course, for endometrial cancer, my own topic, uh, the molecular uh, characterization and the identification of the vast differences and, and the characteristics of the molecular groups have been the, 
development, which was really uh, entering an exciting time with uh, endometrial cancer treatment. Yeah, I, I'd like to also add, I have a hope that uh, radiotherapy can use, be used selectively in ovarian cancer more in the future. I think there's a role there. It's something that we historically haven't done. That competes with the increasing number of good agents that we have in, in ovarian cancer. But, but immuno-oncology is here to stay. It's, it's an amazing time to be an oncologist. There's so many new agents. We've gone for so many decades without new drugs, and now we have so many new drugs, we can't test them all. It's, it's, it's a really, it's, it's an amazing uh, phenomenon. With advanced planning, um, morbidity is lower, and I think it'll allow us to do uh, palliation better, where we can target lesions and provide less morbidity for our patients, and I think that's also important. Fantastic. I, I completely agree with that, but also that now we have less toxicity and we do have less. I mean, I'm 30 years in this field and the, the, the clinical picture of how the patients have their toxicity is so different from, from 20 years ago. And that indeed gives us better results for the patient. We have also the, therefore the opportunity to have more high perfectionated treatments for, for smaller target uh, areas. And of course, indeed the combination with immunotherapy, but also many other targeted agents for all of these cancers. Well, I wanna thank you, um, all of you, obviously for uh, your time. Uh, thank you, Karen, for joining in on the call as well. Um, you have done an amazing job with this special issue. We're really looking forward to its publication and also looking forward to uh, the upcoming journal club where you will have an opportunity to answer questions from all over the world live. So um, I want to thank uh, all of you, David Gaffney, Karen Krausberg, and Anuja Jingren. Fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you.